1: Hey everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. Our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right, today's guest is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, one of the most innovative and impactful charities of the 21st century. But his role helping people is about as far as you could get from his beginnings as a nightclub promoter. In his 20s, from the outside, it looked like he had it all. He was living a lavish lifestyle, making upwards of five grand a night, jet-setting with the mega wealthy and driving around in fancy cars, getting paid to get drunk, and spending many a night high on cocaine. But after a decade of debauchery, chasing money and status, he realized that even too much was never quite enough. Feeling emotionally and spiritually bankrupt, he decided to build a life that was 180 degrees in the opposite direction. He sold everything and joined a mercy ship on its way to Liberia. As he boarded the ship, he promised to give up all of his vices, a promise that he kept, and that trip ultimately changed the entire course of his life and the lives of millions of others. Seeing so many people in need, he became absolutely obsessed with the notion of ending the world's water crisis. Now, nearly 15 years later, he's well on his way, and since launching Charity Water in 2006, he has helped his community raise over $300 million and build wells in roughly 30,000 villages that serve over 8.4 million people. In 2017 alone, his organization raised $50 million, bringing clean water to an average of 3,561 people a day, an average of one person every 24 seconds. His staggering philanthropic accomplishments have seen him named to Fortune magazine's 40 under 40 list and Forbes' Impact 30 list. So please, help me in welcoming the man who placed 10th on Fast Company's most creative people in business list, the author of Thirst, Scott. Harrison. You too. too. Thank you to for having show. me. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Your story is absolutely insane. And what I want to start with is something that came up over and over and over, which I was really captivated by. It's this notion of redemption, mm-hmm. which isn't something that people really push you on a lot, but I want to hear about that. What, what is the notion of
0: redemption to you, and why is it so important? Gosh, I mean, for me, my decade of debauchery really started as an act of rebellion. Uh, I was this Christian kid, you know, brought up in a really conservative family, playing by all the rules. And then I just had this moment where, you know, I said, now it's my turn. You know, now it's time to go and explore the other side. And, you know, it started with smoking and then drinking and then drugs and then gambling and then pornography. And, you know, one by one, you know, I just took on the vices of nightlife. And 40 clubs and 10 years later, you know, I found that I I hated who I was. I mean, I was rotting inside. And this selfish pursuit had left me um, the, the most deeply unhappy person that I knew. So for me, the, you know, redemption was trying to come home. It was... It was a almost a nostalgia for the the virtue and the morality and the spirituality that I'd been brought up with that I had rejected. It really felt like it was a clean slate um, that allowed for me to be able to redeem the the past and you know you, you mentioned this, but I, I went on a hospital ship to West Africa, and the cool thing was that from day one uh, I was able to communicate a very different story to the 15,000 people on my list. I mean, I had amassed an email list of 15,000 of some of the most influential people in New York who were going out spending $25 on a cocktail, $500 on a bottle of champagne. So they went from getting invited to you know, the Prada party at the opening of a new megastore to this really life-changing, redemptive humanitarian work. So it wasn't lost, those years weren't lost. Um, I was able to kind of use them from day one. Do you think anybody can start over? I really do, and that was, that was really one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, and, and why it's so personal. I mean, my wife was like, I can't believe you tell people some of this stuff. You know, no one, no one goes, uh, I, I think she was just expected uh, surprised at how honest and it was about how really bad I was. And I think so many people believe that their past defines them. And you know, I can never start over. Um, you know, The things that I've done uh, are, are, you know, are impossible to overcome. And I would hope that my story, I mean, at 28 years old, you know, if you had run into me, what, 15 years ago, um, there was this moment at 28 when I had gone out to dinner at 10, the club at 12, after hours at five. I'd stumbled home, coked out of my mind at noon, Right? I'm taking Ambien to come down, and I remember grabbing a comforter trying to block out the windows right, so that I could sleep. And I look out the window on Houston Street in New York City, and I see people on their lunch break in suits, like normal people going to lunch or to, you know, to the gym. And you, know, you would, my life is so unrecognizable now from that. Um, I think it took a commitment to walk away completely you know, from those vices and, and really to give it all up. But um, I, I believe anyone can change. It's never too late to change. And you can actually use the things in your past, use the darkness to, you can redeem it.
1: That's really, really an extraordinary story. Now, the people that are listening right now that want to have a similar kind of redemptive experience, walk them through that moment where, because I know you had been trying to give up drugs and alcohol and the yeah. other advices to sort of mixed results. But then when the mercy ship comes up, you're staring at the gangway, you're about to walk out. You yeah. really have this moment. What was that moment and how could you help other people get themselves in a place where they could have something similar?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the first cathartic moment was really at the decade point and, and it was on a opulent vacation in South America. So it was... It was this moment where I had collected the, the markers of success, the things that I thought would make me happy. Right, so my girlfriend at the time was on the cover of fashion magazines. I drove the BMW. I had the fancy watch. I had the grand piano in my New York apartment. I had the Labrador Retriever. And I was vacationing on a compound in South America with servants waiting on us and horses in the background and Magnus Dom Perignon everywhere and a thousand dollars of fireworks that we just blew up the night before. So it was just this picture of, okay, did it, and you know, did enough of it. And I realized on this trip that there would never be enough. It was almost like the veil was lifted. Um, I looked around and saw it for what it was. There would never be enough girls, there'd never be enough money, uh, somebody would always have a better car, a better watch, you know, private planes. It was, it was this never-ending, insatiable pursuit of more. It was a pursuit of, of me really, a a pure and utter selfishness that would have no end, and, you know, I realized that the, just thinking about legacy, um, you know, coming up on 30 years old at the time, my tombstone was, might actually read, here lies a man who got 10 million people wasted over the course of his life. You know, I mean, who wants their tombstone to read, like, here's the guy that got people drunk for a living, and there on that... It, on that vacation, I asked myself this question, um, what would the exact opposite of my life look like? What would the 180 degree turn look like? And the, it was a life of virtue, you know, so if mine was a life of, uh, of debauchery, it would be virtue and, instead of vice. And it would be a life of service to others and not myself. So then there, was, there were months of floundering and trying to smoke less and trying to quit drugs and just this kind of really uneven uh, six or seven months that then culminated with um, an incident in New York, which, which gave me an excuse to get out, the mercy ship accepting me. And then this final hurrah, where I just, I looked at this 522-foot hospital ship full of 350 doctors and surgeons and volunteer crew who were all there for the right reasons, and there was something, you know, um, symbolic or almost prophetic about walking up a gangway. You know, the gangway being pulled up and then sailing away into my new life. Sailing onto a new continent. And, you know, I, I went out with a bang. I think I drank eight beers that night. I smoked three packs of Marlboro Reds. I remember getting on the ship with the nicotine patch and the gum. You know, just just realizing that I to to create a new story for my life, I really had to go all in you know I had to go cold turkey and you know and, and I, I haven't looked at a pornographic image in 15 years and I haven't had a cigarette I haven't touched Coke or I haven't gambled um, I, I really walked away from that it's interesting how
1: did you let go of all the traditional trappings of success you know you've talked about you give away like some absurd amount of your money but even compared to what you were making it's a lot less now than it was back then yeah um, What is it neurochemically is sort of how I view the world, but what was it in in
0: that, the way that it makes you feel or whatever, that's allowed you to commit so deeply? I think it was when I realized that money would not make me happy, there was a freedom of just saying, okay, I'm going to stop pursuing that. And uh, then when I realized that giving money away or raising money to give it away um, really did make me happy, that became the new metric of success. My greatest ambition personally around money is I want to write a million dollar check to a charity um, at a a certain stage because someone did that for me and they completely changed the game. You know, a stranger walked in at a moment when we absolutely needed the confidence and we absolutely needed the capital and they wrote, they were extraordinarily generous. I love that. How do you, so to me, you're a very effective entrepreneur
1: as well as having run just an extraordinary charity, but tell us a little bit about how you started as a nightclub promoter—not not to glorify, but the the things that you did to get into that business—I think are applicable across the board. Um, the thing I'm most interested in was when you called the guy up and said, "Do you want somebody to work for you for free?"
0: Yeah. Well, I got I got my start in nightlife. Uh, it was a club called Nell's in New York City, and I I, I was I I'd, I'd played piano growing up, and I loved music, and I kind of stumbled into eventually producing what was the biggest R&B open mic night in New York City at the time. And, and I just had a knack for um, putting together the band. Um, I, I was working with a great partner at the time and, and finding, cre- creating this environment and this culture where artists wanted to come and try out their material and just f- a safe space. So Stevie Wonder would come, and Brian McKnight, and Whitney Houston, and Prince um, would come and perform. And, and, and I, I grew that for a while. And then someone said, well, that's great. You're doing this thing, but I bet you can't do the same thing in fashion. You know, this is a completely different world. And this new club uh, opened up, uh, and the, the owners were on the cover of New York magazine, the four owners. And it was a dare. It really started out as a dare um, between someone um, that, I, that I, wanted to, I wanted them to respect me. And I said, well, they say I can't do it. Let me see if I can. Let me see if these skills will port over from music into fashion. And Yeah, I just called. I left 30 voicemail messages. I've always been pretty tenacious. Um, if, I, if I really want something, you know, I go after it. And I can, I can push through a lot of no's. Um, I, I probably left 30 voicemails until finally the club owner called me back and he said, okay, I'll give you a shot on our deadest night. It's a Monday night and I'll pay $150. And... You know, I I took that start and then wound up, you know, working at 30 fashion type clubs over over the last year. I want to go back to something you just touched on about
1: tenacity. You said when you really want something that you can be quite tenacious in the 30 phone calls. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book, you talk about something that I thought was really uh, bizarre and wonderful, uh, which was that you convinced the doctor when you were a kid (laughs) to let you watch an autopsy. Yeah. Um, tell that story, and then the yeah. punchline,
0: which I loved. I grew up wanting to be a doctor as a kid, who would help sick kids, like uh, or help sick people like my mom get well. And you know, I remember that the the science class when you dissect the frog, I just thought that was fascinating. And you know, I probably told my friends, you know, I think I'm going to go dissect a human. So I figured out, uh, you know, who was the, the local pathologist. Um, and this is, you know, maybe three blocks from our big four thousand person high school, and call him, write him, you know, figure out. Uh, hey, sir, I really want to be a pathologist, <laughs> right? You know, I give him a whole kind of story of, you know, your profession is the most interesting to to me, and you know, next thing I know, I'm cutting. I got a scalpel in my hand and a saw, and I'm cutting through a human. You know, down in the basement of the medical ward. As his assistant, I thought I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. But it was a simple. I just asked. You know, there's so many there are so many things that that over the last um, years I've been surprised that people have just said yes. You know, things that you might you might not even have the courage to ask for. Um, it was interesting. We a couple of years ago we did a gala. Um, we had shot. It's actually three years ago. So virtual reality first hit the scene. And I saw one of the the earliest VR films and said, this is something Charity Water has to embrace as a technology. And the the idea of being able to intravenously deliver empathy, you know, empathetic content into someone and get their full attention for a few minutes while their phone is off and they're in your world. So interesting to me. So we wound up shooting our first film uh, with eight GoPros, you know, on a stick. I mean, this is before the cameras, that you have now, and um, we shot a, a really moving eight minute piece of a 13 year old girl who gets clean water for the first time in her life. So we have this film, and I have this vision of serving the film up at our gala in synchronous viewing to 400 people at the same time. And our gala was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the Temple of Denger, right, like the, the amazing Egyptian wing of the Met. Um, with the pool and the glass looking out on Central Park. And 400 people would be coming in black tie, and I just had the vision, I could see it so clearly. They walk in, they have their dinner, and then after dinner, uh, hundreds of volunteers walk out, strap headsets on everyone, and then at the same time, press play, and take them all to Ethiopia. Bring them back, I hope, genuinely moved, right? I imagined this in my mind. Tears screaming, you know, streaming down people's faces, mascara running. And then I would ask them to give what was in their hearts to clean water. So you know I tell my team the idea, like, cool idea, right? But we couldn't get the VR devices. No one would give them to us. So I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I was trying to figure out, could we go buy, you know, it was about $800 for the package. It was, a, it was an expensive phone. And then this is, this is pre-Oculus and all the stuff that we had now, it was Gear VR. And I just, it was no after no after no. It was too expensive to buy. I was looking into could we buy 400 and list them on eBay the next day and take the hit. And and everyone was just saying, no, 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 we can't do it, it's too expensive. I just, I wouldn't let go. Um, I found my way to the Verizon CMO, um, eventually convinced him to loan us 400 of the new um, phones and then leverage that to then work my way all the way up the Samsung chain and finally got a VP who, because Verizon did the phone, said, okay, I'll send over pallets of the things, and we got them, and we wound up getting it all for free. I think we raised $2.7 million after people came back um, to give 270 villages clean water. So there's, I think a lot of these things start with me, me seeing it um, at the end. You know, it's almost like seeing the press release. I mean, I, I can see the day on Earth when everybody has clean water. You know, I can see that drop the mic moment where no human being simply because of where they're born is gonna die of bad water, is walking five hours to a swamp or a, you know, a pond or a dirty river. And you know, there may be a long way between now and that moment, but we're, you know, we're, we're working a little closer to it. This year I think it's almost 4,000 people getting clean water every day. And hopefully next year it's 5,000 people a day or 7,000 people a day. So, I typically see these things, and then because I could see it almost like it happened, the no's just feel like you need, you know, there are these roadblocks that you need to push through. You need to find a way. Do you talk to your staff about that? I find that's really
1: hard to inspire in other people to get them to push past all the no's, to maybe not even create the vision, because it sounds like you can do that really effectively and give
0: that to them, but to get them to really believe that it's possible. I teach them how to ask, and that they need to ask. You know, every once in a while, someone will email me back, and they're like, oh my gosh, I just pitched some software company for $10,000 of licenses, and they just said yes. And they were fans of Charity Water. So this, we do have a culture of asking, and again, it's not for us. And having a business model where 100% of the money is going directly to provide clean water, it makes it easier to ask. When I'm asking Verizon or Samsung for you know, half a million dollars of VR gear. I'm like, it's not for me. I'm gonna use that gift, and I'm gonna give you know, 100,000 people clean water. Don't you wanna be a part of that? So I think it's excitement, it's asking, it's invitation. So I have learned that you just have to ask, and then you have to push through the nose. Hmm. And enough people have said yes now, you know, to, to now impact eight and a half million lives. But boy, if I could count the nose, I mean, there's tens of thousands of no's that we've all heard over the last decade. And is there anything specific that you teach your staff about how to ask? Um, you don't want to be entitled, ever. So it's it's a really grateful ask. You're telling the story of what you're asking for, why you're asking for it. Um, if, if you're asking for a gift in kind, which we do a lot, I mean, you know, uh, for the free web services or free software, or you know, Samsung gave us $50,000 of TVs for our new office. Um, this is a funny story, we, we built out our, our headquarters in New York, and amazing, I mean, we, we have these amazing stories of people encountering Charity Water and being radically generous. And we had a landlord um, who had given us uh, headquarters in New York for $8 a square foot in Soho. You know, market was like 60 a foot or something. And this landlord then moved us into a new office uh, in Tribeca, as we grew, it was twenty-three, twenty-five thousand square feet or so, and we didn't really have the money to build it out. So he says, "Tell you what, I'll bring the contractors and the plumbers in, and you know, you just give them the speech. See if you can inspire them." So you know, he brings them in, and I, you know, I've got some some maybe mob-looking guys, you know, with hands that feel like they're three times bigger than mine, uh, crying in the conference room Whoa. as they are moved by our work and the need and. Um, the impact that we're making and you know this this office this what 1.8 million dollar office build out um, I think we got 1.3 million donated Um, Because everybody wanted to be a part of it. So Samsung said, well, we can give you $50,000 of TVs for KPIs and dashboards all around the office. And the architect wound up donating all of their fees back. And WeWork said, well, we'll give you furniture that we have in warehouses because we'd rather your staff be sitting in it to change the world than sitting in a WeWork warehouse somewhere. That's the culture that we're trying to instill. And you get enough yeses, and then you grab onto that yes, and it, it powers you through a lot of no's. It powers you through the discouragement.
1: You've got people working for a lot less than they could be making somewhere else. So obviously that's on the side, but how do you take somebody that is really pouring their heart and soul into this and still hold them to an exceedingly high standard?
0: Yeah, I'll use my wife as an example. So she was the second employee uh, of the organization. We worked together for nine years. She was the creative director and really built the Charity Water brand. And I remember that People would write her looking for a job. And the, the incoming would be something like this. I love Charity Water so much, I'll do anything. You know, I'll clean the toilets. We've seen this. We had, I think we had 1,500 people apply to be the receptionist um, last year at Charity Water. You know, 1,500 applicants to answer the phones and greet people as they walk into Charity Water. So this, this was common. And Vic would be so, she would actually get angry about that. She's like, I don't want someone who just wants to work here because they like the mission. I want someone who wants to be best at their craft. So she said, do you want to be the very best graphic designer or the best UI UX designer or the best animator? Those are the people that I want. We want the people that are leaving, you know, Zynga or Google or Adobe or Apple or Tesla saying, oh my gosh, this thing that I do that I've gotten really good at, I didn't know that it was applicable to... And suffering of others. I didn't know that it could be used in a charitable context. So we always focus on craft and excellence first uh, in the hiring process, and not mission, um, not kind of the you know the the heartful people. Now it's our job then to get them really excited about the mission once they come in. Um, we do that. You know, one of the unique things in our culture is every year we take our whole staff to the field. This costs us like hundred thousand dollars to take them to Ethiopia or Cambodia. Or Nepal and say even if you are not in any way directly related to the water programs if you're opening up checks if you're um, you know if you're working on email marketing if you are the receptionist we want you to meet the people that you're indirectly serving and you know that's that's a really important thing in our culture where you know and and the feedback is unbelievable people come back and they meet our local partners and they see wells or rainwater harvesting systems or big you know, solar gravity-fed systems built and, and they realize that that's what their work adds up to. It really adds up to humans on the end of, you know, human lives that are extraordinarily benefiting because of the thing that they do. Tell me more about innovation. So Mm -hmm. I
1: know that you have a donor who said, I'll give you a million dollars a year as long (laughs) as you keep innovating. And you said long ago it stopped really being about the the money, but you've continued to push yourself to innovate every year. Um, What does that process look like? How how do you innovate?
0: A lot of it has had to do with technology. So how can the advance of technology be used for good, be used in our context. So you know, VR, when it first came out, everybody was talking about porn, gaming, right? The, there was almost the malevolent uses of VR and people are gonna be locked away in these other worlds and not talking to each other. We immediately just went to, the, to optimism. How could we take someone across the world, deliver a meaningful experience to them, deliver a, a higher sense of connection to the work, to the impact that they could make. When GPS came out and we just realized that you know GPS was now something you could pretty much mount on anything and it could talk to satellites, we said, "Well, let's put our drilling rigs up for the world to see." So we mounted GPS units to our drilling rigs and we built web platforms where people could track them driving around Ethiopia in real time. And then we gave our drilling rigs Twitter accounts so they tweet their actual location. So it's it's You know, if there's a new platform, how can we use this platform to tell stories? If it's a new technology, how do we use this technology to further our values of hyper-transparency or our values of connection? So at any given time, there's just a culture where someone can bring a new idea in and then a a small group will go and work on it. We do hackathons. We shut down the office for two days every single year. We've been doing that for five years. And things get built in the hackathons that you could see online. Mm. Um, there are real products that come out of those those days when we stop and just think outside the box.
1: I love how much you think outside the box and how much you've been able to accomplish. And hearing you talk and sitting next to you, optimism just like pours out of you. What is the importance in what you're doing, or anybody for that matter, of optimism?
0: Oh, man. it's I mean, it's essential, I think, if you are in, in any sort of business of, of trying to change the world, trying to involve people, trying to build a movement. Um, uh, I actually heard a pastor say once that those with the greatest hope have the greatest influence. And I, I love that. Like, wow. there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people in the world that think the world is getting better and there are people that are, think the world is getting worse. Who do you wanna hang out with? And I think Bill Gates has done such a great job in this with his notes at the end of the year. He's like, poverty is on, like, this is the best time to ever live in the world on all of these metrics, right? From malaria, from child mortality, even water. When, when I started 12 years ago, there were a billion people without water. It's 663 million. 400 people got access to clean water over the last 10 years. Now, there's so much work to be done. It's still one in 10 people alive drinking bad water, but we are making progress and You know, I I talk about like even those metrics, right? 3,500 people a day getting clean water. That's the positive metric, not the 4,000 kids dying today of bad water. So I think people are drawn to optimism. I think they're drawn to people with hope. And um, you need it for fuel. You know, if I really thought that we were trying to achieve an impossible task, it'd be hard to get up in the morning. If I really didn't think that we were going to make any headway or it was a losing battle, uh, it would be hard to stay motivated. Yeah. I I could literally talk to you all day.
1: Uh, Before I ask my last question, tell these guys where they can find you online.
0: Yeah. um, Charitywater.org. The book, um, we have a a pretty cool story around the book. Um, I gave away the whole advance and all the proceeds. um, So thirst goes straight to help more people get clean water. So the book has actually just turned into now um, this, hopefully this thing where, you know, maybe it'll help millions of people um, get clean water and maybe it'll even help some people um, just encourage them that no matter what their past is like, chances are they weren't as bad as I was. I believe no one's beyond um, redemption. So that's just thirstbook.com. My last question, Mm -hmm. what's the impact that you want to have on the world? I'd like to directly impact at least 100 million people's lives. So I would love um, 100 million people to move from dirty water to clean water. And we're at 8.4. So 8.4% of the way there. Um, And then I would just hope that that other charities might be birthed through our story, um, that other you know, I, I would love to do so many things. I mean, I lose sleep over the fact that people are going to bed hungry, that people are going to bed without shelter, you know, people are going to bed without access to healthcare. all of these things. I would hope that people would take the Charity Water Playbook, they would take some inspiration in, you know, what a drugged out nightclub promoter was able to, you know, to do for one issue and maybe even go and start that on a bunch of other verticals. And that, you know, I know it's happened a couple times. A couple people have said, you came and spoke at my middle school. I mean, gosh, I feel really old now. Um, But there there are people that have said, you came and spoke at my middle school, my life changed and now I've started a charity and I'm doing it full time. So I would hope that, you know, I, I just look at it as sowing seeds. You know, you're constantly out there telling stories. I'm probably making 150 speeches a year and I'm just putting the stories out there and you never know what ground it kind of falls on, you know? I mean, some, some is no ground, right? And some is later ground. You know, some takes a really, really, really long time to germinate. And some is, wow, that impacted me, and I am making a change now. Um, one, of, one of my favorite stories from a speech, I was speaking in, uh, in, a, in Miami, um, a pastor friend had said, hey, will you come and speak in my church? There's four services, right? And I'm like, sure, that's easy. Speaking four times in a row for an hour, it was exhausted. Yeah. I got to the end of this and said, you know, I'm wiped out. It was, it was not in a wealthy community, so nobody gave money. So I just felt like I poured my guts out mm-hmm. for no good reason on a Sunday except a favor you know, for someone I'd met once, and nothing happened. Nothing happened a year later, nothing happened a year later, nothing happened a year later. A few years later, I think it was four years later, a $100,000 check arrives in the office. And it turns out that someone heard me speak that night, went home and changed his will. He died of cancer four years later. And he had written us that night into his will for $100,000, 10 communities. Gets even better. The family turns up. I'm like, we don't really know anything about this organization. So they come up to New York. They get so involved. They've now given hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh. So that one of those four speeches that had no impact at the time, 4 years later, you know, is going to impact tens of thousands of lives, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. This family now wants to host us and bring us into their community and so you have these moments that you just really you hold on to and say, I don't need to measure the impact from a speech in the moment or even in a half decade anymore because you never know how long it might take. For that seed to grow. Um, So I would hope. Sorry, that's a really long answer. So it was was probably a short question. Not at all, man. (laughs) That was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was
1: really incredible. All right, guys. I love his answer about optimism, and that is something that I hope all of you will take away from this interview, is that, would you rather be with people that think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, or would you rather be around people that really believe that something is going right, and that knows how to execute, that knows how to do something with that, that knows how to think big, and then go through all of the no's to finally get to the yes. That's the kind of person that you want to spend your time with, and that is exactly this man. He has been out there doing those 150 speeches a year for years and years and years, planting all of those seeds so that something really extraordinary could blossom out of that. It doesn't matter what your thing is, but find your thing, find your purpose, and go and plant as many seeds as this man has and have the kind of impact that he's having. That is something that I wish for all of you guys. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.